This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm thrilled to introduce you to Melissa Guyberson. Melissa is an author and occupational therapist, and as a storyteller, she captures moments by taking pictures and writing. Her essays have appeared online and in print in numerous publications, and she received an honorable mention in the memoirs personal essays category of the 91st Annual Writer's Digest Writing Competition. Now that is an accomplishment. She joins me today to discuss her memoir, Late Bloomer, Finding My Authentic Self at Midlife. Welcome to Uncorking Story, Melissa. Thank you, Mike. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you here. And Melissa, I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin? So my story, I've always enjoyed writing. Um, I remember as a kid being sad about my folks' divorce, and I would start writing. I never gave them the letters or the songs, um, but I do remember doing it. But um, I had a, someone recently asked me, is this your dream? And I told them about having had something published in graduate school, uh, an article for the school I was attending. It was non-traditional and thrilled, absolutely thrilled when I got that notification that we want to publish your, your article and then seeing my name. And I knew then that I wanted to see that again. Um, but um, life happens. Uh, it didn't happen again, although I kept writing. And when I started writing pieces of my current story, um, I had dug them up in the pandemic, reached out to Brooke Warner of She Writes Press, not really knowing a whole lot about her, and said, so I found this in you know, the back of my closet. Would anybody be interested in this story? And she said, well, I'd be interested. And my story of this book and my emerging into this, you know, writing world started then. We started working together and those stories took shape and meaning and a book came out of it. So uh, how old were you when your parents divorced? Uh, I was, I believe, 10, 11 when, the, you know. Uh, I, I was going to say something I probably shouldn't say when it hit the fan. Um, <laughs> That's okay. You can you can swear if you need to. Thanks. <laughs> it comes with being a New Yorker. <laughs> oh sure, sure. I mean, I'm a I'm a Connecticut guy, so you okay. know we we uh, you know I I'm not as bad with the language as New Yorkers, but uh, you know there there could have been some sailors in my family. <laughs> uh, 
So you were 10 or 11 and you're turning to writing to help what, like process through kind of what's going on in, in your home life or? Exactly. There was very little um, productive communication, let's say. Um, and typical of a kid, I didn't know what was happening and I was sad about it. And so I took to writing as if I was writing to my parents, even though I never shared it with them. Um, you know, in some childish kind of fantasy that, oh, they would see it and see the error of their ways and everything would be resolved and peace would come back into my home, um, which isn't how it happened. But it's where my first memory of actually writing through my feelings started. Yeah, but that, that, that must have been cathartic for you, you know, to some extent, um, you know, kind of helping that, you know, 10, 11, 12 year old, you know, young Melissa kind of process through some very complex emotions. I mean, and you're right at the cusp of like hitting puberty and all these big life, you know, hormonal changes kind of coming through. Right. Um, so, yeah. Did, did you keep any of those letters? Sadly, I didn't. Um, unless I find those in the back of some closet, the way I found, you know, what became a book, that would be great. But uh, all these years later, they have not emerged, so I don't know where they where they ended up. All right, so let, give us the backstory to Late Bloomer. Um, it sounds like you, you had been maybe not intending to write a book, but what, what were the, the the building blocks of it? Was it like journaling, or what what was it? I'm not uh, I'm not a, a real, if I can use that word, journaler, but I do write to process and to kind of make sense of what's going on. I say around me and within me. So I will do that pen to paper. I love journals of the books, but I end up taking notes in them and I will write into my computer. I will write essays, articles, stories, um, things just to make sense. And I had done that early in my journey in my mid 40s when I had come across some information that made me start to question the path that I was on. And those stories are what I had uncovered during the pandemic that I had that had caused me to reach out to Brooke Warner. Got it. Got it. So, so, so there was some kind of, I don't want to say a flashpoint event that happened, but there was something that happened. Mm -hmm. You turned to writing to help process it. So the big question that I'm guessing my listeners are going to be asking is, well, what was that flashpoint event that happened? Like what, what pushed you on the path of, of turning to writing again to process something, you know, complex or a big curveball thrown at you? Right. So what happened was, so I had been married to a man, uh, my ex-husband. We were married 19 years, two kids living in suburban New Jersey. And I, I never imagined a life other than that. Um, and suddenly one day a woman walked into my office and she looked at me in a way that no one ever did before. And I think I looked at her in a way I had never looked at anyone before. And a friendship developed, and that friendship became a little bit more than that. And I did not give it any thought at all, um, to be honest with you, um, other than having this friendship and these feelings I didn't understand. I don't know that I wanted to. And then one day I was at the gym in the locker room, and there was a woman with her back to me, and she was putting lotion on her legs. And suddenly, like I was just frozen in time. And that was the first time the words crossed my mind, you know, could, am I gay? 
Like, why am I looking at this woman? That's Zoe. (laughs) And that's when I started realizing something was going on with me that I needed to understand. Right. So kind of I started writing again. So growing up, you never had any inclination that you were anything but a, a heterosexual female. Yeah, that's correct. So this, I mean, this is coming, what you mentioned in your 40s? I was 44. 44 years old. Okay. So 44, you've lived, you know, sort of a, I don't want to say textbook life, but textbook sort of stereotypical, you know, uh, heterosexual life, married to a guy, a couple kids at home, um, suburban New Jersey, uh, which sounds exciting. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, you develop this friendship and, you know, you see somebody at the gym and the wheels start turning. Um, yes. Um, I, I have to, so, and then you, you turn to writing. Um, at what point in time do you approach your husband with this information? So once I, once those, as you say, those wheels started turning and I started reaching out for help to try to understand what was happening because I didn't know I, it didn't make sense to me and I was probably fighting it. I, I probably some level of me understood, but because this was the life that I had been working on creating and envisioning, you know, my children, I was, I was fighting it. So I reached out for help and my husband at the time knew something was happening. And at one point, he sent me an email and said, can we talk? Can you please tell me what it is you've not been telling me? Mm. And so I reached out to my support uh, people that had so, sort of, re, you know, responded to my calls for help. And they said, tell him he already knows. Mm. Uh, so we sat down and I told him I was struggling with my sexuality. And he said, I know. Wow. And we cried together and he was extremely supportive at that early stage. And we decided to keep things as quote unquote normal because we were just months away from my daughter's bat mitzvah. Yeah. And we didn't want to um, do anything to interfere with, with her moment that she'd been working on. And so we just went about our way for, you know, the next several months until after on the other side of the bat mitzvah. And then we told them a month later that yeah. there were changes. Interesting. Uh, how do you, how do you, how do you um, imagine that your husband knew? Well, um, he had had some suspicions because of this friendship I had, and he saw that I was out of sorts, um, behaving a little bit out of character. You know, I was spending time with this woman beforehand. At that point, I wasn't anymore, but you know, he had seen the progression and he saw that I was struggling with something. And he, you know, he wasn't gonna outright say it. He gave me the grace and the space for me to come to it on my own. Um and I am appreciative of how supportive he was at that early stage. Yeah, I, I, I could see where it'd be very hard for some people, you know, men or women, to be supportive when their spouse comes to them and says, hey, this person you married um, right. is, uh, is, is not the same person that you married. Um, 
So it, it seems like that was a, that was a positive outcome in that regard. I mean, having that conversation and being yes. able to cry about it and almost mourn over the end of what was um, seems like a, it's a, it's like, I mean, I got a tear in my eye when you were telling me that story. Like it was it's a, it's actually a beautiful story. Um, how did your how did your kids take it? So my kids, when I told them um, a month later, I told them on Black Friday, so the day after Thanksgiving, and my my kids are great. My daughter is what I call an old soul. Um, she's very empathetic. She suspected something was going on. She had no way of knowing what. And when I told them, and I told them everything at the same time, I told them that you know he and I would be separating. Uh, we had an in-home separation, so they would see some changes, and then more changes would come later. And I told them the reason why we were separating, because I didn't want them to have the same experience I had as a kid. I never wanted them to think that there was um, we would be getting back together or that it was their fault in any way. And I never wanted them to get a sense of shame, because I have no shame. Um, and I didn't want them to... to get any kind of inkling that the reason I didn't tell them early on was was that. And what happened was when my daughter was sitting to my left on a different chair, and I was obviously very emotional telling them this was the hardest thing I think I had ever done in my life was to tell my children because I was afraid. Afraid yeah. of hurting them, changing their story and how they would react. And when I finally got the words out, my daughter got up from that chair, sat down next to me, shoulder to shoulder, put her hand on my back um, and just started rubbing my back, you know, just giving me that love and support that she sensed I needed at that time. Yeah. And she's been great. Um, and my son was a little bit younger, never, ever had a problem with the sexuality piece. But he, you know, was initially upset knowing that his dad at one point was going to leave the house. So, yeah. but we maintain a really great relationship. I have a great relationship with my kids. My kids have a wonderful relationship with each other and they have a great relationship with their dad. Yeah, because, you know, you had a choice. I mean, you know, a fork in the road, right? One way you could go down and just kind of hide it and keep living inauthentically. Um, yeah. and you know, you made the very hard, which, which would have been hard for you. Um, you made the hard choice to, to sort of hey, reveal everything that was going on. Um, which of course, short term would create a little turmoil in the family, but long term, you know, it's, it's probably a lot better doing that and having that sort of really hard conversation, um, than kind of hiding who you truly are. And then having your behavior, I, I, you know, I'm sure they would know something was up. And, you know, I, I don't I don't even know what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> it's, it's more like, you know, you had two paths you could go by to quote Led Zeppelin. Um, <laughs> and and you chose the one that was very hard for you personally at the time. Mm -hmm. But sort of probably the most positive decision you could have made at that point in time as well. Yes. Um, I, I understand everything that you're saying, and I agree 100%. And the, some of the things that I was told are kids are resilient. This is a great lesson for them. I had read a book by 
now adult children who had a parent that had, come, you know, they had divorced because somebody had come out as gay. And all of those adult children at the time said, because um, their stories were different, they had wished that their parents didn't stay together for them because they looked back on their childhood as, you know, being inauthentic, if I could use that word, that they would have rather it go a different way. And the other thing I always think of is if my one of my children, I have two children, had come to me, what would I have said to them? Or if they still do, what would I say to them if they came to me with, uh, you know, such a huge problem? Um, I'd say, be true to yourself. Yeah. Live your genuine life. Be authentic. Um, and I didn't want to be a hypocrite. I wanted to model what I would tell them. Yeah. Out of curiosity, did were you married young? Yes. Yes. How, so, how young were uh, you when you were married? So it's funny that you say that. I was 25 when I got married, which is, you know, in these days, I think that's young. And my daughter is turning 24 in just, I can't believe it as the words, you know, come out of my mouth in just a couple of weeks. And I keep thinking, wow, at her age, I was already engaged. Yeah. Um, I, so, I, I, I asked because I, I was married young too. I was married at 24. Mm -hmm. Um. And I and I just maybe I was just about to turn 24. I can't remember. Um, and I had three kids by 27. But I think what happens, I mean, I, I've got this hypothesis when you get married so young and you don't really have a lot of adult life experience behind you, you know, you miss a lot of opportunities to really come into yourself a little bit and understand who you really are. I mean, the four years in college, you can kind of wipe those out a little bit because, you know, you're you're doing you're, you're studying, you're partying, you know, who knows what's going on. But, you know, when you're when you're out on your own living an adult life and, and you know, you don't really have a lot of time to do that, um, you know, and I, and I know a lot of people in in a similar boat, not the same boat who who have, you know, all of a sudden realized that that they're gay. But they realize that they haven't really been living authentic lives in other ways. Um, you know, maybe it's the the career choices they made that they compromised on when they were younger or, um, you know, starting a family at a certain time. Um, I think a lot of times as adults and, and when we approach middle age, and I think I'm technically because <laughs> I know I'm not going to live to 100 past middle age. <laughs> um, you know, I think we we struggle with authenticity at some point because we're not who we were at 24. Um, and I wonder why it's so hard for for us to to do that. To why do why do we f struggle and fight with authenticity so much? Right. I think you know we we grow and we change. I mean, you know, it's an evolution. I think we're supposed to. I wouldn't want to be the same person I was at twenty five. I like to think in all these years, I've gained some some wisdom and some experience and. Um, and I think we do come into our own. I don't think we're expected to be exactly the same. But I agree with you. Um, you know, even in college, I had started dating my ex-husband in college. So a lot of that experience was tied to him. And, you know, the only path I knew was to get an education, marry a nice guy, which I did, have children, which I did. I was just following the road, um, maybe recreating a childhood that I didn't have but wanted. Um, but you're exactly right. I didn't live um, as an adult. I immediately got married. And so I'll reference my daughter again. You know, I'm a little envious of her. She's living her best life. 
She has lived alone. She lives with flatmates. She lives in London. So she's exploring, um, taking advantage of geography. And I've never lived alone, um, ever. So I had, you know, even at my age, I haven't had some of the experiences that my daughter has had now and is having. Um, so she is living her best life and getting those experiences. And at the same age, I was getting ready to have a family um, without actually having done exactly what you said, lived my own life as an individual um, and as an adult. Yeah, I think we should we should take a page out of academia and, and give ourselves like, you know, every five years into a marriage, give ourselves a sabbatical, you know, and, and have us be able to like, kind of, you know, not necessarily go out and go crazy, but really, you know, take take four weeks or whatever it is to to kind of, you know, be apart for a little bit and kind of see where that where that takes you. I don't think my wife would like that idea very much, by the way. Um, and my listeners are probably yell at me. But uh, it just, I think I think it's a fantastic idea. I support you 100 percent. There we go. Well, we'll send it up to the committee. There you uh, go. <laughs> All right. So getting back to late bloomer, because you you're you're spending this time in your 40s doing kind of what you were doing, you know, when your parents divorced, which is processing through writing. Mm -hmm. And at some point during the pandemic, you found all of these these notes, these entries, these this, these works. Yeah. Um, you bring it to She Writes Press. Um, and what's the, what's the process of putting this together as a memoir? like? So. Um... When Brooke said that she was interested in my story overall, and we started working together, we started making sense of the story itself. Uh, created a timeline. What were the major, you know, points along my, you know, as it was a journey, I literally likened it to as if I was driving down the highway. These were exits. These were detours. Things like that. And started writing about each piece of that until it started to take shape as a story. And at some point, Brooke had said, you know, this is really looking like a book, you know, these pieces of it. And I said, well, what happens now? And she says, well, now you can find a publisher because she was working with me as an editor. Okay. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, this, this, is, this looks good. I would love to have this in my catalog. And the minute she said that, um, I was done. I, you know, I, I really enjoy working with Brooke. Um, she writes press is a wonderful community of, of writers um, who support one another. And I was so honored that she said she wanted it in her catalog that I didn't need to go any further than that. Um, and then we just, you know, started um, shaping it more into a book with meaning, takeaways, you know, what's the message. And as that was happening, I was also healing and creating what I thought was a universal message for women outside of sexuality, just who we are as individuals, um, you know, trying to figure out who we are in this world, being authentic, what are our values, um, dealing with grief, loss, change, parenting. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah. and how to deal with hard things and, 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 and empowering, you know, readers to, to know that they can do hard things. Yes, we can reinvent ourselves um, as we need to. Right, and 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 with with without fear that it's going to be worse on the other side, right? With with almost like, hey, it's it's actually not not only is it not going to be worse, it could be so much better. 
Yes. And I tell people that people who reach out to me who are just at the beginning of a very similar journey, and it's very, very scary. And I tell them that this is a tough journey, but it's worth it. It's worth it when you get to the other side um, and you will get there, but it is definitely worth it on the other side. Yeah. Um, and uh, I have to ask, how has the reaction to the book been? Uh, amazing. Uh, you know, I'm a little bit blown away and I'm honored by the support that I've received from some really uh, top-notch people, authors, um, people I know that have read the book. Um, I, I've been really quite um, blown away and honored uh, by the reception it's gotten. That's great. That's yeah. great. So is there is there another book in you, you think? Oh, I, I hope so. I love writing. I do. I might write about the journey of writing uh, because, you know, the publishing, uh, writing a book is one thing. And what they don't tell you is getting that book into the world is a whole other journey. It is not the fun part of it. Um, no. That is that is for sure. That is for sure. Right. So I know you're sitting in, in Provincetown, Massachusetts right now. Uh, any any chance you're going to do a signing at the Yellow Umbrella in Chatham this summer? Oh, I should mark that down. Uh, I'll look into that and I'll let you know. I have to say that it is my favorite bookstore okay. on the planet. And I, I was I was able to do a book signing there, I want to say five or six years ago. And four people showed up uh, because it was the one sunny day during <laughs> the week. Um, and uh, there was one of these weeks, you know, in the Cape, the weather is, you know, there's a big question yeah. mark. And one sunny day, nobody's in town. Everyone's going to the beach. Right. So. Exactly. The one day you, you, you hoped it would rain. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> well, Melissa, one of the things I like to do is get to know my guests a little bit more through pop culture. So I'm curious, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV? I was, I was a Trekkie. So the, oh, you really? Awesome. I was the original Star Trek. There you go. <laughs> right. Um, I played it with my 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 neighbors. We played Star Trek, um, but I watched it uh, religiously. And I mean, I had the the little action figures. I I loved Star Trek so much that I remember watching the episode when they were all aging, mm -hmm. dying, and. I, I, Captain Kirk was getting older. He was going to die. And I turned off the television. I remember coming downstairs and I had a bi-level house and sitting on the stairs crying. And my mother came over to me and said, what's wrong? And I said, Captain Kirk, he's dying. And of course, you know, I missed the end of that episode and I had to wait to watch it, you know, at some other time to realize he didn't die. But I was very invested in Star Trek. When you would play Star Trek with the other kids, did you have a character that was your go-to character? I did. Well, you know, we played at Michael's house because Michael had the best backyard deck. He had a two-tier deck. And so he always got to be Captain Kirk because it was his house. So I would either be Scotty or Bones. Okay. But not O'Hara, right? Not O'Hara? No, no. You know, maybe I should have known then. I always. I was going to say, maybe that could have been a sign. That could have been, been a another sign. sign. I might have to redo the book for all those signs. That might have been another one. Yeah. I was always the doctor or, or, or beat me up, Scotty. Yeah. So we would play, uh, we would play Love Boat mm -hmm. <laughs> growing up as kids. And uh, 
my, my friend Mario was always Captain Stubings because he had to be like if we played Star Wars, he was Luke. If it was Star Trek, he was Captain Kirk. He, he was the guy. Right, um, right. My twin brother looked like Dr. Bricker. So he was uh, Dr. Bricker. I was gopher. Um, not that uh, you asked, but, you know, Love Boat was one of my go to's as a kid. Well, I was thinking, I, you know, and I wondered for myself, who, would I have been gopher or Julie? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or Vicky. Or uh, or Isaac the bartender. Let's not forget Ted Lang. He was. I did uh, like Isaac the bartender. He's a great character. I love. I love. Uh, he shows up on on random things every now and then. Um, oh. The actor Ted Lang, and uh, okay. I, I always it always puts a smile on my face because I picture him in the red jacket, you know, doing the finger guns. Um, <laughs> how about love- music? What, what did you like to listen to growing up? Oh my gosh, very eclectic. Um, you know, my mom you know, was a teenager in the fifties and she had her, I still have them all her 45s uh, with her, with her name on it, because back then they would bring them to parties and my sister and I would play her 45s and singing to the beaters from like, you know, if you were making a cake, um, I wouldn't do it now. Uh, but you know, we used to sing to my mom's fifties, but growing up in the seventies. So I loved the seventies music. Um, but I'm very eclectic. As I got older, I actually, you know, you mentioned Led Zeppelin. I had Led Zeppelin posters in my college dorm. Uh, but I will listen to just about anything. Uh, very eclectic. I um I grew up listening to hard rock and heavy metal and like rap music from the early 80s. And now in my late 40s, I find myself listening to serious 70s on 7. Um, and I don't know what happened to me because, you know, I go from listening to like Iron Maiden, to like, you know, uh, Gordon Lightfoot and loving every minute of, you know, Carefree Highway. <laughs> I love it. I love it. If I, I, you know, go to music for me, if I'm on the computer, I will put in 70s music. But if I'm in the car flipping stations, I will always stop if Metallica, Iron Maiden or Judas Priest comes on. Always. And if my partner is with me, she'll look at me and go, really? Yeah. <laughs> yes. My wife hates th- that stuff when it comes on. She immediately turns it off. Um, <laughs> but I guess opposites attract. There you go. There you uh, go. Do you have a favorite place to read? To read? Um, my favorite place to do almost anything is here in Provincetown. This is my go-to, my happy place to read here, to to write here. Um, but if I'm back in New Jersey, I have a house in New Jersey that um, my son still has one more year of college and that's their home. Um, but I'll just curl up on the couch um, or in bed and I have one favorite chair in my bedroom uh, that I will curl up into a into a blanket and read. But if I'm here in Provincetown, anywhere, uh, I have a little patio outside. I will sit and curl up there and read. How about a favorite place to write? Provincetown, for sure. Uh, I absolutely love writing here. Just being here is very inspirational. And you feel the presence of so many people that have been here before. All the artists that that come here, writers, artists, photographers, anybody. um, And you just feel that here. So this is my favorite place uh, to write. And while I didn't take a sabbatical from my marriage when I was uh, married, I took a sabbatical here for uh, six weeks a couple of times to write and just to stay in the flow it's very easy to do that here yeah how long have you been in Provincetown for uh 
I've been, we've owned this little place. It's a little bit of a fishbowl, but it's ours uh, for five years. And, you know, go back and forth between here and New Jersey. All right. And then do you stay up there all year round or or do you vacate in the off season? Well, we use it all year round, but, you know, we do have to stay in, in New Jersey. Uh, family reasons maintain the house. My mom is in New Jersey. Um, so we go back and forth. Um, I've been here now. I, I've dropped anchor here. So I, I'm here most of the summer now. And nice. we'll see what happens afterwards. But my nice. favorite place to be is here. Yes. Very nice. Um, and my last question for you is is always the deep one, which is um, I call it the uh, dear younger me question. So if you could if you could write a letter, because I know you're a writer, mm-hmm. or write a letter, maybe it's to the, you know, 11, 12 year old uh, Melissa who is writing uh, herself <laughs> some letters about her parents divorce. But if you can give your if you can give that younger self some words of advice or encouragement, what would you tell the younger Melissa? Keep reading. Um, I, I just, I don't think I read enough when I was that age, when I was younger. And I feel like I'm making up for lost time now. There's just so many amazing things to read out there in the world. And I have piles and piles and piles of books waiting for me to dig into that. Um, I'd like to think had somebody given me this advice when I was a kid, I would have read then and gone back a second and third time. Um, So I would tell that um, younger me, keep reading, keep writing, and just keep going. It gets better. Yeah, maybe keep your eyes open in the locker room. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, Melissa, where can people pick up Late Bloomer? You can get Late Bloom. It's it's available for pre-order now anywhere. Um, we love supporting our independent bookstores, but uh, you can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere that books are sold. Um, you'd be able to pre-order it. And I'm sure there's a couple of uh, nice bookstores up in Provincetown. Uh, oh, my gosh, yes. Women Craft is uh, just an iconic uh, bookstore here. Um, but there, I think there's three altogether uh, that that are here. There's uh, Women Craft, East End, and Provincetown Bookstore, um, and we support all of them because we love our independent bookstores. Yes, we do. We do, uh, especially uh, after the pandemic with the rise of Amazon, we can put a little wind in the sails of our local independent bookstores. Absolutely, Melissa. Where can people find more information about you? Do you have a website or any social media handles you want to share? I do have a website. Um, They can find me at melissagyberson.com. I am on Facebook, Melissa Guyberson. I'm on Instagram, Melissa Guyberson031. And uh, I love hearing from people. So shoot me me a message through the website or uh, on Facebook. All right. I will be sure to put all of that in our show notes so people can just uh, look it up really easily and uh, reach out to you. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you so much. I, I loved having this chat with you, Mike. It's been great. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.